Thanks for listening to the podcast Hi, of Triple R's. This is Daniel James, a weekly radio show exploring issues that impact lives. A weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact lives of every people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. Every Tuesday evening, mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday. Feel free to get in touch. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Shortly, I'll be joined on the phone by Narita Waite, who is the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. We'll talk about a few things, but the issue we'll, um, we'll certainly talk about is Victoria's bail laws and how those laws disproportionately affect Aboriginal women and therefore are in need of drastic reform. So we'll talk to Narita about all of that and a number of things. I, th- I note that the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service has suffered as a result of the latest state budget, meaning that they're going to have to cut some services over the next little while to be able to deal with that. So we'll talk to Narita about that as well. And in the second half of the show, it's been um, around a year as well since the destruction of the Dukon Caves in Western Australia at the hands of Rio Tinto. So we'll be joined by Cato Muir, who is the chairperson of the National Native Title Council, to see what he has to say about what has or hasn't been done in the intervening 12 months to ensure that sort of thing doesn't happen Again, not only there, but around the country. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, um, here in Victoria, we like to pride ourselves as being the most progressive state in the country. But if you sit back and take a look at one part of our society, the way that justice interacts with Aboriginal people in this state, it's very, very difficult to see how we're progressive at all. Uh, we continue to see our kids die and people die in custody at alarming rates. Our rates of youth detention for Aboriginal kids is appalling. The number of children in out-of-home care, which often acts as a gateway to youth detention or remand, um, and the general over-representation of Aboriginal people in our prisons and jails And you simply can't draw the conclusion that we're anywhere near progressive when it comes to these matters. And now, since 2018, we have another battle on our hands in the form of uh, bail laws, uh, which were revigorated and changed in uh, 2018, which were intended to target men who commit violent offences, but have in practice impacted women experiencing poverty and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women the most. Recent data shows that 53% of women in Victorian prisons have not been found guilty of what they were arrested for. And this is because the reforms to Victoria bail laws made it much harder for a significant proportion of people charged with an offence to show why they should be released on bail. So who better than to speak to Narita Waite, who is on the line now. She is a Yorta Yorta woman and she is the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, Narita, welcome back to the mission. Thank you, Daniel. It's lovely to be able to talk to you. Tell us about these bail laws. I think... You know, they they came about a couple of years ago amongst an outcry from the public and from the media, I guess, in terms of wanting bail law strengthened, given that there were some um, horrific offences committed by men that were on bail um, at the time. So they were strengthened, but what do they look like now compared to what they were actually aimed to do? Mm. So in terms of the bail laws, which, as you rightly pointed out, were amended following um, some very tragic incidences. 
what we saw was the strengthening of the reverse onus provisions in the Bail Act, particularly the show compelling reason and exceptional circumstances provisions. Um, so that's section 4AA, 4A, 4C, and 4D, schedules 1 and 2 of the Bail Act. Um, and what that has meant really in reality for a lot of um, our community members is that they're always in um, a show compelling reason and exceptional circumstances provision. Um, you know, if you look at uh, Veronica Nelson, who sadly lost her life um, in prison um, whilst being held on, on on remand, she was actually just arrested for shoplifting Daniel, um, yet yeah. she was remanded at the female maximum security prison days whilst Frost, um, and subsequently, like I said, did, uh, died. And um, her death is a devastating piece of reminder that our women are the fastest growing cohort to be incarcerated in Australia. In Victoria, Aboriginal women make up 13% of the prison population, but yet only represent 1% of the general population. Many of our women are reminded before they provide these opportunities to engage in culturally appropriate programs or supports and actually address those underlying issues that you rightly pointed out, which is poverty, um, which results in loss of housing, um, inability to secure work, um, and the ability to care for your children, which then means they, they get lost um, to the out-of-home care system and um, cycles of disadvantage and trauma continue for generations. Um, and bail is, and its effects are more encompassing than I think the everyday Victorian realises. And mm. whilst, like all Victorians, um, community safety is always a priority, we always have to make sure that in making laws, we're doing it from a position of um, evidence, one of research, um, and not one of emotional outcry, because that often then results in unintended consequences, which is what we're seeing now with the bail laws. Yeah, it's a, it's a nasty habit that we particularly have at the state government level, and Victoria is not immune from it, from uh, public and media outcry leading or, or driving uh, law reform uh, in, in this state. Um, and we're seeing a, a lot of hysteria at the moment at the, uh, the proposal of a new safe injecting room, which, again, is aimed at helping the most uh, vulnerable and um, downtrodden in our society to get back up on their feet and not to die. Um, but what needs to be done to, to, I guess, change these laws to make them more equitable in the way that they are actually enforced in real life? Mm. So creating a presumption in favour of bail for all offences, except in circumstances where there's a specific and immediate risk to the physical safety of the person, which would cover off um, on those tragic incidences that we saw in the changes in 2018. Um, that needs to be accompanied by explicit requirement in the Act that a person may not be reminded for an offensive likely unlikely to result in a sense of imprisonment, um, which would be all of those unintended consequences matters we see, like Veronica Nelson, um, mm. who, you know, unfortunately did um, end up dying in custody, but um, every day there are Aboriginal women who are, who are Veronica Nelson, um, who are held on demand, who won't be sentenced to a term of imprisonment, yet um, are locked up, prevented from addressing underlying issues and prevented really from being able to engage in society, which, you know, when we look at what's going on in the Aboriginal space in terms of treaty in Uruk, um, it's just a really a crying shame and it's horrifying. Yeah, so much of what happens in in the justice system, especially with people um, uh, that are that are vulnerable and um, you know uh, are at the the lower end of our socioeconomic scales as they are here in Australia, is is, is hidden, isn't it? Mm. 
And look, when you take into account the fact that many prison women are mothers and you know, also primary carers, um, so it's not just children. Often enough, they're caring for extended families. I'm sure you grew up in a family like mine um, where there are multi-generations and um, our women play um, various different roles in any one time. Um, and it, when you take an Aboriginal woman out of the family, um, you really jeopardise all of that. You affect so many people's lives and so many people's well-being. And when they're not even going to serve a term of imprisonment because it is a crime or a desperation like shoplifting, it is utterly ridiculous. And yeah. then it also becomes evident that, you know, um, that position is completely at odds with the Andrews government's commitment to uh, under the Closing the Gap Agreement, um, which is around reducing incarceration of Aboriginal people and reducing representation of Aboriginal children being removed from their families. And it's indisputable that these laws that increase remand rates to harm women, many of whom are victims, survivors of family violence, is often a coercive control, Daniel, but they also impact on the principle of respect for family life or the conventional rights of the child, but also just human dignity. Um, I'm sure even in 2020 that matters. So, you know, with, with what these bail laws are in effect doing is actually turbocharging incarceration of Aboriginal people and particularly Aboriginal women in, here in 2021. Um, are, are they having an impact on Aboriginal men as well? Yes, Aboriginal men, um, Aboriginal children, Aboriginal youth. Yeah. Um, it's right across the cohort, Daniel, because I don't think many people realise this, but children are subject to the same bail test as an adult. That's ridiculous. Absolutely. They are held to the same standard, despite not having the same brain development, not having the same resources, not having the same life experience as an adult, which is why often you see a lot of children who are remanded in youth, and some as young as 10, a 10-year-old who should be in primary school, remanded in youth prison. Um, COVID-19 um, did allow um, a small break in that in terms of a lot of supports were put in to prevent youth going into prisons to try and prevent COVID-19 pandemic, but since then um, we're seeing a slow scale upwards. And a lot of these children, Daniel, have underlying health conditions. A lot of them have intellectual disabilities and not mm. a, an almost severe to moderate scale. Um, they also have often been out of home care and had no stable housing, no stable family, no stable support, there's no stable access to education. Um, you know, they're really not only traumatised and start from that removal, but then set up to fail um, with the way the system works. And it's, when you talk um, about rates, um, over-representation of Aboriginal people in prison is worse now than when I was born 33 years ago. It's unbelievable. Um, we know that um, over the last little while, uh, you know, st um, state and federal attorneys general have been meeting to discuss what to do in terms of raising the age um, of criminal uh, responsibility. W where are we at with the, with the Raise the Age campaign at the moment? Mm. Um, unfortunately, it's been a lot of talk and a lot of action. Um, and what we are seeing is that some states have made slight moves um, to individually act on this matter, but Victoria has just really sat frozen in this space. Um, there has been no movement. Um, the preference seems to be to wait until there is a national approach, um, mm. but that could take years. It could take a decade. I mean, my child could be 18 or 19 by the time this is done, and then how many generations of Aboriginal children are be sacrificed? Um, when there have been decades and decades of evidence, scientific, um, you know, from childhood specialists, 
that children do not have the same ability to reason and make decisions because they don't have the same brain development as an adult and therefore the rate, like the legal age responsibility needs to be raised to at least 14. And we should be raising the age of incarceration to at least 16 because we should be trying to rehabilitate our children with intensive supports in community and try to keep them out of justice and not funnel them through it. Yeah, I encourage people out there, if you're listening at the moment or you're listening on playback, um, to familiarise yourself with the Raise the Age campaign. Just go on, go online and search for uh, Raise the Age or go on your socials and look for the Raise the Age uh, hashtag and familiarise with the work that's been done to try and pressurise our so-called leaders to actually do something in response to um, the, the raising of the responsibility of criminal, criminality for, uh, for young kids. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, last week, Narita, the uh, Andrews government handed down its um, budget for 21-22. Val didn't fare too well out of that. No, Daniel, it was history on repeat for us. Um, Budget after budget, we see investment in mainstream legal services um, and, you know, pennies, um, if that, for vows. And this is despite um, need in some locations having increased by 110%. Yeah, when, we, like, like we said, with these, with these laws that are turbocharging incarceration for Aboriginal people, um, it's never been more important that um, a, an organisation like yours is funded to to assist people in these predicaments. Yeah, but it's also not about over-incarceration. It's also just about, um, you know, civil law needs like people's housing, discrimination, employment, all the things that keep people from committing crimes and desperation going to the justice system. They need access to legal services to support those. Um, it's about ensuring that women who are at risk of family violence um, are adequately represented and assisted. It's about ensuring that um, our families going to the child protection system um, are able to access culturally safe legal services to ensure those families stick together and are able um, to grow those children strong and safe in community. Um, but instead, what we saw was, once again, $210 million for mainstream legal services and $1 million per annum for two years for vows, um, which just shows you the investment that the state's putting in Aboriginal people when it comes to the legal system, which is nothing. Um, so what it means... They'd rather invest in putting us in prison, like we're seeing with the budget, um, rather than investing in keeping us out of it. So what it means for, for you in, in particular is that for the next three months, your criminal law and family law teams will not take any new matters except for existing clients for whom you currently have an open file for, and your civil legal team will delay the planned expansion of services to Gippsland as a result of the the, the freeze in funding that uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service is experiencing. An Aboriginal families practice um, has also ceased all new intake for child protection, family violence, and family law matters. See, this is my this is my this is my um, s- slow take on it. Um, the reader is that uh, the, the the Victorian government is spending a tremendous amount of money now for the Uruk Justice Commission. It's spending a lot of time to get that commission set up. It's spending a lot of money on the on the treaty process as well, and so they're political cop-out is saying, look, we're spending records amount of money in the Indigenous um, affairs space, 
but when you take a look at the look at the fine print and what actually needs to be done today to address some of the circles of disadvantage that need need closing, it's organisations that you, like yours and people that rely on those services that are missing out on all this. Correct. A lot of the Aboriginal investment you see goes into the government itself. Um, mm. It doesn't go out to community. It doesn't go out where it's needed. Um, and when we look at the cost of what we're asking for, which is $26.5 million, that's the amount that they spend to incarcerate 26 of our people. Yeah. And yet we could have helped thousands upon thousands of our clients. I mean, our lawyers are carrying 130 files each as compared to the 50 file recommendation. Unfortunately, we just cannot continue down this path because it not only does it risk the health and well-being of our lawyers, but it risks the quality representation that we can give our community. And when the system is set up in such a way that's committed against us and guarantee poor outcomes in most circumstances, we need to make sure that we're providing the best of the best when it comes to legal services. So unfortunately, whilst we've had frozen um, intake and whilst we've said it's for three months, Daniel, the harsh reality is that without further resourcing, that's going to be looking at like a much longer time frame. And even then we do come back online, there are some regions that we just will not be able to service because they'll just overwhelm capacity. Um, and the government is well aware of this. We've briefed them on this continuously for the last three years. Um, it's been a continuing conversation, but... Um, they continually try to discharge their responsibilities towards the Commonwealth rather than taking ownership for Aboriginal legal services like they do for mainstream legal services. We're dealing with legal treatment. We're dealing with the with the state justice system here ostensibly. We're dealing with the state criminal system. We're still dealing with the state uh, civil system. Um, and like you said, 130 caseloads files when there's a sector recommendation of 50 then becomes a, an OHNS um, issue for your staff. Uh, look, I've got to move on, um, Narita, but this platform is open to you at any time uh, you like. Um, you've been on the show, I think, three or four times now, which means that you receive a Caramello koala in the mail. Um, I've got your address. You're now an official friend of the show, so congratulations on that. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise and your passion. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Daniel. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now, it's been a year since Rio Tinto destroyed the sacred 46,000-year-old caves at the Dukung Gorge in Western Australia's Pilbara region. Since then, Rio Tinto executives have resigned and there's been a parliamentary inquiry into the cave's destruction. But what has happened in reality to ensure that such a crime isn't committed again there or anywhere else across this big country of ours. So on the line now, I'm very grateful to have uh, Kato Muir. Kato is a Ningalia leader and anthropologist, and he's the chairperson of the National Native Title Council, and he's here to talk us about uh, some of the ins and outs of what's happened in the intervening 12 months. Kato, thanks for coming on the show. No worries, mate. Thank you. Um, first of all, just to give um, everyone a bit of context here, what's the role of the um, Native Title uh, National Native Title Council, just um, just briefly. Yeah, sure. National Native Title Council is the peak body for the native title holders out there. So right across Australia now, we've got uh, 200 determined native title uh, claims that have been determined. 
and there's another 200 claims in the system. So at the end of it all, there'll probably be about 400 uh, lots of land or territories ranging from massive areas like where I come from in the desert uh, down to only a few hectares in uh, uh, the settled parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And basically, we're, we're, um, we're the peak body representing these uh, traditional landholders. Right. So, uh, very important work. Uh, 400, we, we've been getting close to um, um, full representation there in terms of um, native title holders, wouldn't we, once we get to that mark? Well, yeah, I mean, there are 200 that are determined today. Um, yep. There's another 200 in the system, and there are probably still a few, you know, there'll still be a few more native title claims as we go forward. Um, yeah. But fundamentally what's happening, there's a massive shift going on in Australia where uh, Aboriginal, you know, First Nations peoples, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples uh, either own or manage or have some interest effectively over... 80 to 90% of Australia today. Yeah, that's that's a phenomenal number when when you think about it. Uh, let's get to let's get to the caves. Now these caves sit within the area now known as Western Australia. Um, what has that jurisdiction done to ensure that this sort of thing never happens again? Diddly squat, mate. <laughs> Western <laughs> Australia has done nothing. The the uh, basically what's What's happened? Rio Tinto did not break any laws. They yeah. went ahead and did what uh, they normally do and what mining companies have been doing in Western Australia for the last 50-odd years of um, both the Aboriginal Heritage Act being in place as well as uh, the rise of the mining industry in Western Australia. And the laws of the land allow... Uh, these sacred sites, significant uh, world heritage level sites, to be destroyed uh, on a daily basis. This is um, the only difference between Jukan and everything else is that they were caught and someone mm. took notice that uh, this significant site had been destroyed. So, yeah, you're so telling what's going me... on in Western Australia? Yeah, sorry, sorry, go on. Go on. That's all right. Oh, no, well, what I, yeah, well, what I am telling you, in Western Australia, the laws are written in such a way that allow for the destruction of these sites. Um, and also the federal legislation, you can't get away with that as well. So the federal laws also allow for the destruction of these sites. And what we really need, one year on from Chugun, we've, everyone's beat uh, Rio Tinto over the, over the head, which is rightly so, but no-one's really looked at who is responsible, and the responsible party is the West Australian government and Mm. the legislation that they have in place and, more terrifyingly, the legislation that they propose to bring in place. The legislation, the the bill um, that they're proposing, we're going through it now with a fine-tooth comb, having had enough time now to actually look at it. Um, Your listeners may not be aware, but uh, just before the last state election, they were trying to rush this piece of legislation in. Now we've had an opportunity to look at it, and we're actually coming away with the conclusion that the proposed uh, bill for Aboriginal heritage protection in Western Australia will do no such thing. In fact, it actually makes it a whole lot easier and a whole lot simpler for 
incidents like Jukun to occur again. And what we're really... The take-home message there is we cannot trust government to look after our culture and our heritage. And fundamentally what we need is for governments and the legislation that they do to be to meet a human rights standards, um, so, so, you know, United Nations level human rights standards. And that's the filter that we need to run it through so that mm. uh, bad laws are not in place that then uh, allow people to do bad. And what we want is um, uh, a control or a measure over governments doing bad, over corporates doing bad, so that... Uh, we as traditional owners, cultural custodians and citizens and, you know, not only Aboriginal people or First Nations people but all Australians can have an expectation that these deep history, deep time, deep cultural uh, parts of our country which, uh, you know, dwarf anything of Europe or anywhere else in the world in terms of scale and uh, time depth, etc., these places can be protected and preserved for future generations. And that's essentially what we're asking for. And the only way we can really get that guarantee is um, allowing us to have a say over the way in which the legislation is written, how it's implemented, having a review on the ministers. But most importantly is we need to tie everything back to human rights standards. If it's not if it doesn't tick the box of a human rights standard, then it's invalid and it should not be the law of the land. So after the, the national condemnation, the bipartisan outrage, the global condemnation of Rio Tinto, you're saying that the Western Australian government has just tried to put through legislation that doesn't actually really change anything or prevent this from happening again. Is, is the proposed bill or legislation they're putting through, is that to replace the Aboriginal Heritage Act of 1972 or to amend it? To replace the Aboriginal Heritage Act of 1972. And the, the fact of the matter is the 1972 legislation is actually quite um, strong. What has happened is that the government has not allocated resources ever to actually allow it to be implemented in its true form. Mm. And now what they've done is they've basically... What they've done is they've come up with a template or a draft with all these... Uh, one of the things we've picked up, for instance, is that uh, someone with a Section 18 granted uh, today, they've got five years under this bill to um, use their Section 18. Right. So a Section 18 is the authorisation or the approval that allowed for yeah. your gun to be destroyed. Right. So, you know, so, so still, still completely detail. legal. Still completely legal. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, so what role, what role does the federal government have in all this? They had a parliamentary inquiry. There was much outrage, again, both sides of pol politics coming out and condemning it and making sure that they're going to do something about it. What, 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 are the, what is the federal government doing around these issues? Well, it comes fairly back into Minister Lay's uh, hands and mm -hmm. she's not doing anything. Um, she has to review the federal Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act, um, which is supposed to be the last resort. So if we are aggrieved and find that we've exhausted all the channels in Western Australia, um, the federal act is supposed to allow us an opportunity to get a review by the federal government. Um, and it's only ever really 
um, played out, oh, I'm thinking, I think it was the dams in Alice Springs uh, back in the 90s. Um, some of your listeners might remember places like Hindmarsh Island, for instance, where the Act didn't um, preserve the sites. But uh, very rarely, I think Coronation Hill was one instance, it may not even be, I think it was uh, Bob Hawke had actually intervened in Coronation Hill. So the fact of the matter is mining development at state or territory levels um, or any form of impact on Aboriginal heritage uh, is normally approved at the state levels and then the federal government is supposed to offer an opportunity for Aboriginal people or other aggrieved parties to seek a review and seek some federal-level protection, but they never do that. And currently, Minister Lay is sitting on a on the legislation. She's supposed to be reviewing her act as well, and you just wonder what's happening. You've got all the wailing and gnashing of teeth that's going on with um, the Jukun Inquiry, uh, which is basically a government committee, and then the minister, the federal minister, is uh, dragging her heels on actually amending or reviewing the Federal Heritage Protection Act to offer protection to these places. If 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 only the caves sat in a um, a marginal electorate, I think we'd be seeing some some stronger action from Minister Lay on these matters somehow. Um, before I let you go, Kato, are there any sites um, at the moment that we should be concerned about under this legislation or the legislation of other state governments that are at risk from mining companies? Oh, yeah, no. Well, since Jukun, uh, the ministers been issuing Section 18, whether it's Ben Wyatt or current minister, um, have been issuing Section 18 uh, approvals. Um, so, you know, there was a big one in the Kimberley with the Kimberley Granite where um, I think the government decided that they could not prosecute the uh, party that had destroyed the site up there, and that that happened since Jukun. Um, it's going on on a daily basis. If anyone's really interested in looking at what's going on, you just go to the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage uh, website and look at the ACMC Section 18 decisions and you can see that there are um, approvals continuing to happen. Uh, so that was one of the things that we'd called for at the um, once Jukun incident uh, came out. We'd call for a moratorium on Section 18s, but yeah. The state government refused that. Uh, ben Wyatt and the current minister have both refused that. They're continuing business as usual. And as of today, I noticed that um, the government is smugly saying that, no, it will not allow Aboriginal people to have a veto over uh, development applications that uh, threaten to destroy our cultural heritage. Well, Kato, thank, thank you for your time. All you're really asking is for the West Australian government in particular to sit down with uh, uh, native title um, holders and work through the legislation instead of just enforcing the legislation on uh, Aboriginal people that seem to be favouring the big mining companies at the expense of uh, traditional owner groups. Um, let's keep abreast of these issues and um, we'll keep in touch and, and, and talk about it. We wish you the best of uh, luck. But um, thank you for joining me. Whereabouts in uh, WA are you at the moment? Right now I'm out and uh, doing a heritage survey with my people, the Jewel uh, native title holders. We're out uh, in one of the mining camps called um, Linster, uh, which is effectively in the middle middle of Western Australia, pretty much. Oh, fantastic. That's very, very 
remote. <laughs> um, thanks so much, Kato, for your time. Um, I'll speak to you again soon. No worries. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>